You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole and your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to listen to this podcast and then contact us on social media and tell us what you think. And with me, so excited to have back IMF agent Christy Morris. You're not supposed to use my real name. Oh, I thought I made that one up. That's not really your real name. <laughs> I mean, Christy Morris, that just sounds like a fake name anyway. So, you know, right. Yeah. That's your, no, that's my my real name is Grace the Cat Burglar. Ah, ah, fantastic. So, <laughs> well, I'm so excited to be back in the Mission Impossible universe finally as we got Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. Uh, but just a few quick things before we dive into talking about this ridiculously awesome film that's right i gave it away you can find us all over social media uh, on twitter at the 602 club we're on instagram and threads at the 602 club tfm you can find the entire network uh, online at trek fm or facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm of course we've got the listeners only discussion group you can join listeners from all over the world talking about all the different episodes that are happening here on the network and of course uh, you can go over to patreon at patreon.com slash trek fm and become part of our team make sure that all of these great podcasts keep coming to you each and every week we definitely need your help to do that it costs a lot to put all this out and we can't do it without you so again, go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash TrekFM and see how you could be part of the team. So Chrissy, uh, I think, um, you know, we've talked about all of the previous Mission Impossible movies here and had mm-hmm. absolute blast being able to do that. And one of the things I thought was really interesting as we dive into this film is the fact that we actually learn more about the IMF as an organization in the sense of how their agents get chosen. And how do people become a part of the IMF? Um, and this was something that was really, you know, fascinating to me because I, I think we've, you know, seen people come in and out of the IMF and, and be part of it. Um, but this kind of set some interesting rules as to why people become actual agents in the field. Um, And that was really, I mean, again, this is, I think, the seventh film in the series. Mm -hmm. And so to finally get that, I thought was a really cool thing to, you know, we've always been building this universe, but we are truly building this universe still in this movie. Yeah, I love that this one wasn't just about the missions, they're really getting more and more into the heart and the character of the people behind the missions. And so I love that they added that depth to it this time, especially, you know, um, it's always been about Ethan and how the people in his life play a role into everything that he's doing or, you know, him trying to keep them out of it. But here it's really about people having the choice that ultimately it's still about free will. It's just once you accept the mission, 
or, you know, make the choice to accept being in IMF, you realize that you don't have any other life. You've now committed to this for the rest of yours. Um, that also you will be disavowed by the United States if you're ever questioned about who you work for. So you don't have any allies except other IMF agents at that point. But I love how they actually had the other agents tell Grace, what life did you have before this anyway? You were really just being selfish and always trying to get by by doing the next job anyway. So how is this not better than that? Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, we've talked about so many times on this show and with so many of the films that we've watched, the, the thematic element of selflessness and selfishness comes up, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we have that conversation there with with Grace and with Benji and Ethan and Luther. And, you know, he he calls it out, you know, what life, right? Like, what life did you have? Um, and, you know, the fact that this life is that she's living is one that's always on the edge, right? Of being caught and, you know, getting in trouble. And it's a life that's lived only for oneself. And this allows you to be a part of something bigger. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot is made of this film too, in the sense that people almost making fun of the idea of working for the greater good, uh, instead, uh, and, and what's better for all people, not just a specific few, right? Um, mm-hmm. And people jockeying for position here and there, uh, especially when we, we'll talk about later the ideas of power and everything. But, you know, the IMF exists to do the impossible to keep the world from falling into a type of chaos. And it's, it's people who are willing to put their lives in the line for what's better for everyone involved at the expense of their own lives, right? Um, they're mm-hmm. giving up their life for the lives of everyone. And, you know, obviously Ethan's a great example of this, but so is everybody on his team. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that's something that it was really great to to learn is the fact that you join the IMF because you don't necessarily have a ton of choices left, but you still do have a choice. So like you said, this is about free will. Uh, and, you know, you can live your life in prison. You can live your life on the run, um, which may not last very long. Or you can get, live your life giving it for uh, the betterment of of all people, trying to keep wars from happening and those kind of things. And so... Yeah, I mm-hmm. thought it was great for us to be able to learn that. And um, I, I think, too, when you're creating more films in a franchise, I think it's also a smart thing to do to continue to world build as you move forward to let people know, you know, more about this world that they're spending time in, you know, and, and in some ways it's what it, it's creating basically the rules to which this world plays by. And, and here's a big one that. This is the main way that IMF agents are chosen. Not always, but a lot of times. 
Um, you know, we've seen other agents kind of become a part, I think, of uh, Jeremy Renner's character, you know, and, you know, that doesn't seem like he was chosen for the IMF for that reason. And but we don't know. Um, so I, I just think it, it's one of those things where I was not expecting it going into this film that we would get to know more about the IMF after all these after all of these films. But I was really glad that we actually did. Yeah, same here. I think that it gives you so much more to the story and more weight to follow. You know, you you have to have more stakes than just the missions themselves. So I'm glad that they added all of this additional stuff to it. That's a good way to put it. Needing more weight to everything um, in the sense of like, yeah, absolutely. When you're getting more of these characters over and over again, having a deeper understanding as to the why they mm -hmm. are um, and the why of why they do what they do is great. And, you know, no better example of that than in this film where we learn a lot more about e Ethan's past and how he came uh, to the IMF and his connection with the villain and possibly even more. Definitely. I think that, you know, here with Ethan, we've seen before, obviously, he's had um, significant others and lots of different partners in just IMF itself um, with characters like Ilsa. But here we're actually seeing that this villain that it, in this movie has actually been in his past previously um, with Gabriel when he lost Marie. And showing that actually Gabriel was responsible and now it's like a ghost from his past come back to haunt him. And so it's not just another mission this time for him. It's deeply personal and it's like he's not able to shake all of these flashbacks to feeling responsible for everyone. I mean, we've seen things be personal for Ethan before, uh, uh, you know, especially think of uh, Mission Impossible 3 where, you know, he uh, has met this woman and they are in a relationship, they get married and she's in danger and that relationship has played out throughout, you know, subsequent films as well, all the way into Fallout. Mm -hmm. And so we've known some some stuff about Ethan's past, but to realize and to know that Ethan came to the point because of uh, the life that he had gotten caught up in left him with a decision to make. You can choose the IMF or not. Um, and if you don't, most likely it sounds like he was going to go into prison. Um, but for the skills mm -hmm. that he had, they saw potential in him that would be wasted. You know, uh, his first best destiny became being in the IMF. And like you mm -hmm. said, being connected very viscerally to this villain as being the one who had killed Marie um, which we only really see in flashbacks. And so this is something that I got to call out uh, David over in Tatooine Sons. We've gotten to know each other over on Twitter. Uh, and he keyed me into this, that Grace is wearing the same necklace as Marie is in flashbacks. Like, and this is a blink and you'll miss it Easter egg. Hmm. And which then would explain why the entity has brought Grace and Ilsa together as the choice. Um, and, and, and the, um, 
the reasoning is is that Grace is his daughter. Uh, and, Possibly. Yeah, exactly. But it would also explain why the entity would pit his love for Ilsa and for Grace against one another and why Gra- Ethan would tell Grace that her life will always mean more to him than his own, even though they just met. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, anybody I know that's been a parent will tell you the moment you meet your child, you do anything for them, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I, I even think of, in Star Trek Picard, uh, Riker talks about this idea of, you know, you, you'd burn the whole world just to make sure they're safe. And so I think to me, this made a lot of sense um, of a lot of what we see in the film and then end up hearing in the film and why this becomes so personal for Ethan, because, you know, this person then is responsible for taking somebody away from him that meant a lot. Possibly, you know, as we're saying, the mother of his child Um, and then. Now, possibly not only taking away the the woman he's fallen in love with in Ilsa, but his child and mm-hmm. making this impossible choice. Right. Um, and so I love this read and I can't wait now, you know, to see part two to see this play out, because I think that this is right on track and it it makes things make more sense because otherwise to me, it doesn't make sense as to why Ethan would care so much about Grace. Like, I know that he cares about everybody, right, that he mm-hmm. deals with. But, like, to make this so personal where you would actually pit these two women against each other, it seems strange if this isn't the case for him to have Ilsa and Grace pitted against him as to which one survives. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. And I didn't think of that when I was watching the movie um, as you know, it sounds like you didn't either until David said that to you. Um, but it, yeah, initially I just defended it to myself as, well, he values all human life, even the one. So um, that would make sense, I guess, in that sense. But it does kind of feel like, yeah, but if they just met that one time in the airport and she's a thief and that's all he knows about her, right. why would it be such a hard choice between the two of them? Right. And and specifically between a woman that we've seen him grow to love, obviously, uh, through right. these last couple of films uh, and into this one. And, you know, then, like you said, this woman he literally just met. And so. And I think, you know, what this does is this accentuates Ethan's character as well. From his past all the way to now. Which is that Ethan is very much somebody who, you know, people kind of malign him in the film, especially Gabriel, saying that, you know, he just uses people for the mission. And what we see throughout all of the films, and including this one, is that nobody to Ethan is expendable. Uh, And he's working to save every single person he possibly can, Um, even people, you know, he might have just met. Um, and so I think, you know, not only does this read make it mean something so much more, but I do think that it makes even more sense than it just being about, you know, Ethan caring about everybody, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 
Alec Baldwin's character says in Fallout, you know, there's there's some flaw in you that won't allow you to care more about, you know, all people than just the one. But he also says that that's I, I don't I think it's actually your greatest asset, not your weakness. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, uh, that's what we're we're showing here in this film, you know, that it is his greatest asset that he would care more about the whole, which is everyone, which means he cares just a, as much about the one as he does about everyone. And right. so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely on a roll there because I thought immediately of Kittredge, I believe, that said to him, you have to pick a side. Whose side are you on? The United States or one of these other groups that want the key? And he's like, I'm on everyone's side, you know, like I want to save the whole world, not just one group. Um, And that for Ethan, it's all about selfless service to everyone. And like you said, not valuing the greater good or just the one person over one another. It's about the whole. Yeah, I, I just, I, I love it. I'm so, you know, uh, David, uh, we were talking about it the day after I saw the movie and cause I, I'd, I'd seen him tweet something about it. Uh, and, um, so it kind of went into the movie looking specifically. And, and the more we talked about it, I kind of was like, uh, maybe he's her daughter. And, and then we talked through everything and then he pointed out the thing about the necklace. And so, and then I went, back and i saw the movie today and and i was able to see that as well and it really is such a quick moment but i i think it makes mm. um the movie even better if that's the case then in the end um and it makes yeah, i hope it they even, tell us yes i mean i'm sure they will here in part two so which leads us to the fact that we have a a, a new addition to the mission impossible family in grace played by Haley atwell and I'm really interested to see, you know, just what you thought about her being a part of the team and, you know, Haley playing this role. Well, I have to say, first of all, I love the character. I think that they definitely gave her some complexity, whether or not she ends up being Ethan's daughter. Um, since I didn't initially catch on to that being a possibility anyway, I'm just thinking about all the other, all the other aspects of her. Um, so, you know, since we've talked about it in the past that I love characters like Catwoman, there's some similarities here. You know, she's very um, great at pickpocketing, as Ethan says, but are you great at um, put-pocketing? <laughs> Which was kind of silly, but, it, you know, you got it. Um, and she's just got, you know, the actress as well as, you know, how she plays the character is very mischievous, but you can tell ultimately has a good heart and just went through a lot of trauma that led her to this life. And so now I love that they had her become the person who at the meeting between her and Kittredge says, would I be selling too much? Or I realized what I would be selling was too much. Um, And that's selling her soul. You know, I mean, she realized that although a hundred million dollars is really attractive, that ultimately she would be handing over ultimate power to somebody and it could be in the wrong hands. And so what kind of price do you put on that? And so I love that she had that turn to realize what she was doing and decide to decline. Um, And I just think that Haley Atwell is awesome. Obviously, I think we both loved her as Peggy Carter. She's done a million other great things. And then here, I think she was the best 
new addition to the team that can really stand on her own um, and, you know, stand up to the acting chops of Rebecca Ferguson um, and Tom Cruise and be um, a respected part of the team. Yeah, I really like all of that. And and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I love Haley Atwell. I think she's fantastic. And I've wanted her to be able to be in more things like this. Uh, and I, I think, you know, especially getting a chance to rewatch the film with the read that, you know, she's his daughter, which was fascinating. There's a lot of things that she does then that feel like Ethan Hunt and his mischievous nature, his playful nature, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that going she can, rogue. Yes, exactly. Um, but also the fact that she can do the magic tricks like he can do, you know, just little things like that, that, that kind of, that, that there's this, you know, DNA resemblance of them. You know, I also looked up to, she is young enough to be Tom's daughter. Uh, and so, um, you know, that I think even just re- in that reality. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. She's such a fantastic addition to this. Um, you know, I, I think uh, in some ways she has some of those sensibilities that Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa did as well, which is this playfulness to her, um, her ability to, uh, you know, back and forth uh, conversations with Tom Cruise uh, and his Ethan Hunt for that to feel very comfortable uh, to feel as though you're almost like speaking to an equal uh, instead of there being this this weird, you know, imbalance there, I, I think is phenomenal. And so I think uh, this casting was uh, one of Macquarie's best choices uh, here mm-hmm. in this movie. And I'm I it's one of those things where. Much like Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa's introduction in Rogue Nation, I leave this movie only wanting more of her, not less. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that uh, is great. I mean, that's when you know you have successfully introduced a new character. When the audience leaves, being like, "Okay, that character that was new, they better be in that next movie, and they better be in that next movie a lot." I'm going to be frustrated. You know, I, I think Haley Atwell's performance pulls that off. Um, but I also uh, think it's the chemistry then she has with the rest of the characters that really makes this work. Specifically, of course, working with Tom Cruise. And you need her to have that chemistry with him. So it feels very almost natural and normal from the beginning, um, especially like we've uh, postulated here um, that they're related you know uh Mm -hmm. and so i you know i'm so excited that she's a part of this universe and and you know i would say a big part of that is just i love this actress in the first place Uh, i think she's done such great work and and all the stuff that she's been in previously that i've seen her in i think she's always kind of deserved this type of role and i'm so glad she's finally been given it Mm mm-hmm Oh, yeah. I'm with you a thousand percent. <laughs> Which, because, you know, like, right, I, you know, I liked the fact that we had her do the the Peggy Carter show, but I feel like in many ways this character was just kind of wasted in the MCU, as was mm-hmm. the actress. You know, we, we just didn't give her enough to do, which is kind of a travesty uh, that that was the case. 
Yeah, because I mean, too, like I really think of after seeing her in this role, other similar actresses we've seen um, and how they all do their their different characters so well. She reminds me of like how we felt about seeing um, Anna de Armas in Bond. And That's then, pull, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. even like a um, Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman. I, I think that Haley Atwell could do something of that caliber at this point because of seeing how she did with this. No, I, you know, you, um, you mentioned the idea of like having a Catwoman, like who Haley Atwell is Catwoman. Sign me up for that. <laughs> I will take that all day. So you're here to hear folks. Christy called it. Yep. I mean, she's already got the magic tricks down. So, well, and, and I mean, she just has, I think, the wonderful personality, right, to be able to pull off mm-hmm. the playfulness that you want. Uh, especially with with her and um, a Bruce, you know, Bruce Wayne. This is the mm-hmm. type of the, I mean, this is the type of relationship where you could totally turn that into having the more sexual tension that, that those two characters have. So 100 um, percent, I, I think. Yeah, do it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> on the other side of the coin, you know, we have Ilsa's character. And, you know, she's been here now. This is her third Mission Impossible film. And we have a death. And I wanted to ask you how you felt about this because I found it to be kind of shocking that we were going to do this. I did not expect coming into this film, uh, you know, that we would lose the character of Ilsa. Yeah, it, that was something that actually did kind of bother me a little bit. Um, because for one, like you said, not expecting that this was going to be the end of the line for her altogether. But then also feeling like, although, you know, this clearly does have an impact on Ethan, the way that she died, it just seemed a little bit um, anticlimactic for what I would expect for such an impactful character in the previous films. Did you feel that way at all? So I think actually the read of Grace being Hunt's daughter and her saving Grace's life makes it better. Mm-hmm. In, in the sense that and I'm wondering if, you know, of course, with part two, we would we would learn that, you know, Ethan told Ilsa about that because there mm. seems to be all of these looks happening between them, especially in that scene at the party where they're giving these looks like these knowing looks back and forth. And that, mm-hmm. of course, you know, who Ilsa is, is somebody who does not back down from a fight or a challenge or any of those things. Um, and so I think to me, that actually is something that if that's, if this truly is the case with the film and that, you know, she is his daughter, then Ilsa dying to protect Grace, I think makes that so much more impactful. I mean, it it's obviously terrible in the sense that this reminds Ethan of Marie and of course now it makes the decision of whether or not he kills Gabriel at that moment on the train even much more difficult for him, right? 
Like you've taken away two of the people he's mm-hmm. loved. Um, it impacts the whole idea of, you know, Ethan struggling to uh, have people get close to him and, um, you know, always trying to keep people at arm's length. And yet at the same time, you know, he's a human being who who needs love, wants love, friendship, all of those things. And so I I, I think that it was it was hard to have happen because I love this character and I, I love Rebecca Ferguson as the character. I think she's mm-hmm. been so phenomenal uh, in this series. And so it was, I mean, even watching it a second time, I was like, oh, I just, I don't, I don't want to lose her presence. But I also feel like it's one of those things too that it's such a part of what's also going to come in part two that I don't know if I have the full impact of it yet. Right. Like it it has a massive Mm -hmm. impact here, but I think there's a further impact coming in part two with her death that is going to be um, even more poignant. So I'm 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 with you in the sense that, like, I think it just makes me feel uneasy. And I think that's the way it should. The, The any, you know, any major character that dies in a film it shouldn't leave you feeling like, oh man, I was so glad they died. And I totally know why that, you know, it's like, I, I, you want to feel badly for the character. You want to feel, uh, kind of lost and kind of morose about the fact that a character has died. Uh, and so I, I, I think in the sense that what you're articulating is exactly where, why i'm i'm glad that i feel that way because um i wouldn't feel this way if i didn't already love this character and the performance given by the actress you know over these three films in the first place yeah and i mean i will say if it ends up that they do confirm in part two that grace is indeed ethan's daughter then this scene will hit a little differently for me and may make me feel um more satisfied with the way it happened um but yeah, at the moment, it, I guess the thing that had bothered me was that I get the intent of them not having Ethan make it there in time, but it kind of felt like one of your major characters died, you know, amongst two other people and one of them barely knew her and Ethan wasn't there at all. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like sometimes it hits even more if somehow he was seeing it happen. Or if there were more people around, you know what I mean? It just felt like, oh, it was, you know, a a back alley somewhere in Venice. Yeah. I mean, as the kids would say, it hits different, right? (laughs) Um, Right. (laughs) Yeah. So, no, I I, I mean, and I guess there is something to that, too. Um, You know, for all the insanity that happens in these films, there's also that reality, right? Is that. Ethan can't save everybody. You know, he can't be everywhere yeah. at once. And therefore, um, him not being there is in some ways much more realistic than him, you know, being able to witness the True. final, you know, blow or something like that. And it, it does, like you said, it leaves you feeling like, oh, man, just like, oh, I just wish it could have been different. 
But, you know, that's, mm-hmm. isn't that what so much of our lives are like? Man, I wish that could be different. It's, you know, it's yeah. it's not the way it happens. Apparently, I wish more people were there exactly. to see it. <laughs> um, so, and I, I, I'm going to miss her as a character in, in this series. I, I think, you know, I've, I'm a huge oh, yeah. fan of Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, and I think she's done so much good for uh, the Mission Impossible series. And I think she's done so much good for, of course, the character of Ethan and, and all of the other characters in the film. Um, and so I'm I'm glad that um, it does seem like she died doing something really incredible, which is, you know, um, if Grace is Ethan's daughter, she died saving his daughter. And I think mm-hmm. um, that's a that's a worthy death for a character like this. So I did want to add, um, if I could, that I, I loved what you said about Ethan not being able to save everyone, because it did remind me of the scene where, you know, Grace is thinking about becoming part of IMF. And she says, but you guys will be there to save me. You'll or you'll keep me safe. And I love that he jumps in and says, I can't promise that. You know, I mean, it's still your choice to become part of this or not. And people on your team will always do their best to try and save your life because your life matters to them. But it's not always possible. Yeah, 100%. I, I think that's a great pull. And it, it's absolutely, you know, why he says that to her. I think he's at, he's thinking of the fact that there have been two women that he has loved that he could not save that there was nothing he could do mm-hmm. for. Uh, and of course, you know, this being his daughter, most likely is something to which, yeah, him saying, yeah, your life will always matter more to me than my own. I mean, what more mm-hmm. could you want somebody to say about you um, than that? That, which means that mm-hmm. they will, and they are going to do everything they can to keep you alive, but that doesn't mean they were going to be able to do it. Uh, and so, yeah, right. you know, this, this film, you know, obviously has such, and it's, it's even said a couple of times in the conversation around the idea of truth and the loss of truth and, you know, with the entity's ability to control the narrative because it controls what you see, what you read. And in that way, then what you think of reality, it's become, you know, big brother, a digital big brother, it's become Skynet. You know, and it, it's it's interesting, too, because, you know, as we've talked about, it's cold and it's calculating, whereas, you know, Ethan cares about people, even the one. And so um, I. I found it fascinating, you know, to really dig into this idea, because, you know, as Macquarie and his partner are writing this film. You know, we we weren't at a place where Chet GTP existed the way it does now. Uh, AI wasn't in the same place that it is just a couple of years later, you know? And I think there's a terrifyingness to this film because it's not all that far from actual reality uh, of, of what people are terrified about. Um, and I think also just the reality of, you know, narratives finding a way to become the quote-unquote truth, even though those narratives are later proved to be false, people still 
chant slogans and say things that we already know are not true because they've been proven with actual facts. But by the time it's already out there and been said a trillion times, people believe that is truth, whether or not the actual truth comes out. And I think this movie does such a great job with all this. And, uh, you know, watching it, I just found myself kind of terrified uh, through this thought process. Um, Not only just socially what we see with like social media, news, all of those type of things. But then when you think about the idea of, you know, people being able to alter reality because they're altering digital reality, which is unfortunately becoming Mm -hmm. our reality. And I think it reminds us that, um, you know, digital reality isn't reality. And we have to, you know, Mm -hmm. and to be careful to not get sucked into a false reality uh, in place of actual reality. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. There's so many messages here that I feel like you have to, like, break it down into its layers. Um, There's absolutely what you're talking about with, you know, the false reality and the, the loss of truth because people are or the AI or whatever is controlling the narrative. Um it also is so relevant to us currently because of having AI involved now in things like art and the risk that poses for traditional artists um, having their work stolen and repurposed into other things and not given any credit. Um, And then even made me think of, you know, how they call it the um, they're always listening (laughs) where we have AI now in our devices like the Echo Dot and our phones that show you content relevant to things you've talked about or looked up on your search platform automatically. Or how you'll, if you have an Echo Dot, for example, ours sometimes will start talking inexplicably and we did not say the Q word. (laughs) So definitely, I mean, there's all kinds of things in this message that are terrifying and are so relevant to our reality right now. So I think that this was a great pull to have as the villain that fits in this time in history, as well as just an interesting thing to explore in fiction. Well, and and I think it becomes the thing that, you know, obviously this is one of those places where we've created our, and we've become our own worst enemy kind of thing. Uh, And so I like that that is one of the layers that goes into this. Um, and what you said there, too, about this idea of AI-generated things, um, you know, we have in the film, right? You know, we have uh, the entity mimicking Benji and taking mm-hmm. Ethan on a wild goose chase that's leading him to a place where it can hopefully get him killed. And... That is a reality, right? We can mimic people's voices to the point where now it would be very difficult unless there's some sort of digital marker in there to tell whether or not that's true or not, whether that's the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there was uh, with Adobe Audition, which is what I use to record my native track for this podcast. I remember them coming out with this idea of being able to you know, what if you're recording something and you forgot to say something that you could type in what you wanted to say and it would sample your voice to the point where you could then say those things and insert them into even though you didn't say them at the moment. 
Well, okay, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool because, you know, that happens on a podcast every once in a while, right? You say the wrong, I mean, heck, it happens all the time. You say the wrong thing or the wrong name yeah. or, you know, whatever, and you don't go back and, and correct yourself and it gets edited so nobody knows you made that mistake. Um, you know, you're after the fact. Well, you know, but now we have that ability. You know, you could you could make somebody say or do something that they didn't actually do but make it seem like it's the truth. And unless there's some sort of digital marker in there, it could get to the point where it become too difficult to actually figure out what's reality and and what's fiction. And I think mm-hmm. that's the thing that this movie does that makes it really terrifying, right? And um, because we're seeing it. We're, we, we've got that technology, you know, and you can make a dead actor come back to life these days, you know, by taking everything that they've ever right. done – putting that into the mixer and to being able to create something that which would make it very difficult to say, oh, that didn't actually happen. And I think there's a danger in this kind of reality creation that we are um, experimenting with these days. Uh, and this movie is is absolutely, I think, kind of pinpointing that, how, how dangerous it is, right? Um, which is a, mm-hmm. a part of, you know, the thing that the Mission Impossible uh, franchise, especially with... Christopher McQuarrie uh, and Tom Cruise, these last few films having worked so hard on, which is to make things as real as possible. You know, that's why Tom Cruise does all these stunts to make you know that the person is actually doing the thing. And therefore it's a Mm -hmm. real thing. It's not something fake, right? Which then really does leave you on the edge of your seat because you know, that person isn't just on a blue screen thing having digital having digital altered reality uh and so Mm -hmm. and as we mentioned that hits different right than than knowing that that person was never in danger and that you know so a hundred percent um so we were talking about before we started recording this idea of the entities minions uh and you know we have gabriel specifically as uh, this character who is the main minion the main person uh and acting he is the physical manifestation of the entity in reality uh to make you know this entity's vision come to pass and so i'm mm-hmm. i'm really interested to to see what you thought of his portrayal uh, and um, just him as, you know, our, our main antagonist other than the entity for the film. So I'm going to break it up into two pieces. For one, I just want to say I thought it was so interesting how biblical this was with his name and what he was tasked with doing. Because if you think about the name Gabriel and being, you know, the Archangel Gabriel, he was a messenger of God. And here it's like Gabriel is the messenger of the entity and he's mm-hmm. sent here yes. to do his will. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and that's so interesting. It just kept coming back to me like I've got to look up more about this because that's so interesting that they named him that. Well, can I add one? Because um, so, so, I think you're 100 yeah, yeah. percent on track. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I would have forgotten. Uh, but <laughs> the fact that basically he's a he's a false messenger for a false God with a false religion, right? You know, you, you think about it, there's mm-hmm. the cruciform key, right? The, the cross is the thing that changes yeah. everything for Christianity, 
right? It all comes back to the to the cross and the resurrection. But that this is is a false version of that, which is a whole thing about what we were just talking about with truth and and fiction and lies and 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 all mm-hmm. that and deception. So thank you for bringing up because a hundred percent. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then having it be a cruciform key. I mean, it it all fits together so well. What were they thinking about when they wrote this? Um, And then, too, I just wanted to say I thought that it was really interesting the way that they um, made the entity come to life even more by showing how it was in real time erasing any evidence of Gabriel's actual existence. So there's no information digitally about him being born, where he's from, anything he's done that could be tracked digitally exists anymore. And anywhere that he would be recorded by a camera, the entity is erasing in real time. So it's literally like he's a ghost, even though he is a real human being who's still walking the earth. And I just thought that was like mind boggling. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, they 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 make the joke in some way that the entity is the ghost in the shell, you know, based off uh, that mm-hmm. that film, you know, and and in many ways the entity itself is you know Big Brother in the shell. Um, but yeah, Gabriel is the ghost in the shell, the the one who is you know there but not there. And so I mm-hmm. I love that. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I thought he was great. The performance was fantastic. You know, he's he's wonderfully maniacal in the film. Uh, and I think what will be interesting uh, to get a chance to hopefully in part two learn more about him and that, you know, what mm-hmm. his motivations are, you know, that it's not just about this rivalry maybe that between him and Ethan, but that it's something so much deeper. But I think what's interesting here is that, of course, the entity has picked out the fact that he sees Ethan Hunt and the IMF being the only people that could stop him therefore why wouldn't he then pit somebody against ethan that brings up all of these emotions that hopefully makes it more difficult for ethan to complete his mission so again it's like when you start to think about the way this has all been put together Mm -hmm. and the reasons why it's happening from the you know entity's standpoint uh it's really smart writing and I think that's that's something that's really mm-hmm. awesome, which, you know, leads me to the the character of, of Paris here in the film, uh, you know, playing by the same actress, you know, we know uh, from the Guardians of the Galaxy films playing Mantis. And I've always enjoyed her in those films, yep. but it's so great to see her play a role that's completely different than that, um, you know, where she is somebody who seems to enjoy killing people, enjoy the mayhem um, and then you know have a turn at the end i thought she did a phenomenal job specifically because she barely talks in the film which is also something that's completely different for her as compared to what we get with mantis and so amazing choice and i think just so excited because you know we're kind of left up in the air as to whether or not she's actually died by the end of this film so I, I'm I'm thinking, you know, we could actually bring her back for the part two, which I would love for that to happen. And um going to throw out there first one more thing about her. Speaking of the um, biblical references, I love that, you know, they have Gabriel say, you'll betray mm-hmm. me. Yes. 
and that's why he tries to kill her. Um, now she doesn't have a biblical name, but I just thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, her name is, um, Pom Clementif, if I'm saying that right. And I absolutely loved her as Mantis, but it is so cool seeing her in a completely different capacity as this cold henchwoman who um, she really, I mean, was going at it full force trying to take Ethan down. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes it even better when later she comes back and saves him and says, what else could I do since you spared my life? And so I loved that juxtaposition of sometimes or always um it's better to be the person that's the bigger person and spares someone than to react out of anger or yes. whatever situation yes. you're in I, yeah because he easily could have decided mm -hmm. to just take her out but instead he decided to drop it and leave well and i i think you know specifically what she's been about. I mean, she's been trying to kill what we think is possibly his daughter the whole time and responsible for m maybe ending the life of Ilsa as well, or, you know, helping to mm -hmm. make that happen. And so, you know, what, what drives all of this is the personal nature for Ethan as well as then everyone around him, you know, with, with Luther and Benji specifically. Um, and so, no, I, I, I loved her in the role I, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm hoping and I'm thinking that she'll be back in, in part two, which is exciting because it'd be great to see her as being part of the team, right? Uh, the IMF team, uh, having made the yeah. choice to join them and to try and stop, uh, you know, this terrible power from taking over and, you know, possibly taking over the whole world, which, Speaking of power, you know, you uh, had mentioned in our outline, and I thought was fantastic, the the allure of power and the way in which, you know, what would you do to be able to capture uh, this amount of power and, and really this this godlike power? You know, um, we we have Kittredge back here in this film where and he says, you know, this could allow us to be able to dictate what is true for everyone for generations to come which is a godlike power and mm -hmm. i we've talked about so many times on in this this show and this i think is a really well done uh example of this of that the allure of having the power that's not meant to be ours in the first place and how destructive it is um, and how it can absolutely destroy everything that we've worked to build when we try and basically play God with this type of power. And, you know, and and those that are able to reject it and to say that, no, no human being should have this amount of power in their own hands. This is because we can't deal with it well. Oh, yeah. And I mean, exactly. That's why I wanted to make sure we talked about this, because ultimately, that's what that key means to so many world leaders that know about its existence here is that they're all racing to be the first one mm -hmm. to get it to have ultimate power, either so that someone else doesn't have it, or so that they can achieve something with it. And that's why I love that Ethan says, no, we've just got to destroy it altogether because no good can come from it. 
And ultimately what Kittredge is saying is, I want to be the one with the power. Mm-hmm. Not, I want to make sure everyone is safe. Right. Um, and so, you know, I love that even one of the other IMF agents that sent on that train to get Hunt tells the other agent, I'm not interested in it whatsoever because nobody should have that amount of power. Right. And I'm so glad that they have another character other than just Ethan or his team come to mm-hmm. that realization and show that there are people out there that would say, I understand the temptation, but I don't want it. Right. Right. I mean, it, to, to, to be able to be a person who can say, I understand the amount of power that I could have there, but that it's not right for me to have that power. Uh, I 100 percent mm-hmm. agree with that. Um, and I love that as part of the movie. You know, I think it, it really, you know, I think about the film, so much of it just fits so well thematically with everything that's happening in the rest of the movie. And it just goes to show you, you know, I know Macquarie and Cruz are kind of famous in this series for kind of making things up a lot of times as they go along. Uh, and yet it's strange to me how well all of this seems to work, even though that's the case. And so uh, 100% mm-hmm. ag- agree with you. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that this is the series has done and it's continued to do, especially, I think, you know, since part four uh, is that the action has continued to get bigger and better with every movie. And they're, they're trying to find ways to do things uh that are different and interesting and and as real as possible from the car chases we get to the the runaway train sequence we get the cliff jump i mean you know they're doing as much of this for real as possible and so you know having walked through the series together um i i'm i'm really interested to to see what you thought of uh the you know, action in this movie. And if you felt like it was, it lived up to, you know, what we've been getting, especially, you know, say for the last three films. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely I would say they've upped the ante every time. I remember in fallout specifically, um, the scene where they're climbing up the front side of a skyscraper. Um, and in the past, of course, there have been really bad action scenes, like the ones we don't talk about in Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here, I mean, it's like I even am seeing the things that Tom Cruise is doing because we know he's the number one guy for doing his own stunts that I'm like, first of all, at his age, I worry for him. <laughs> and then second, just for any actor studios want them to continue to be around to keep doing more movies especially someone as talented as tom cruise so i'm sure they were terrified having somebody that is that talented and expensive doing such dangerous stuff but he keeps doing it because that's what he loves doing and he is absolutely a researcher first to make sure that he does everything the way that it should be done and the safest way so I feel like that makes me feel a little better about it. Um, but definitely the best action scene here is the cliff jump. Um, I felt like the car chase was a little too long and the train scene, there were too many cars for them to go through, but that they were good scenes other than being a little too long. Yeah, I think 
the thing that stands out to me with all of these things is that, you know, the car chase sequence in Italy, uh, it, you know, Fast 10 did a car chase sequence in Italy in some of these exact same locations. Mm. This looks thousand times better. So I appreciate it for that. You know, um, mm-hmm. the joke, too, of them continually going in circles around her was hysterical. I mean, I got major laughs. That was cute. Uh, when I went on uh, on uh, the preview night and Thursday night, um, even though this had a few other preview nights, and you know I, the 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 train sequence, you know, we just saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which had a train sequence where they're running on top of train cars and everything, and it looked like trash compared to this. I mean, this always feels as mm-hmm. real as it possibly can. I mean, there are some parts where you can tell, like, something has been CGI'd, you know, when the cars are finally falling. I think, you know, a lot of that, that stuff is not, I don't think, completely real, of course, because there's no way you can actually do all of that safely. Um, I did want to say, if you look up some of the info on the production, how they did that scene originally, they planned on um, actually destroying a real bridge in Poland because it was remote and it was um, kind of falling into disrepair anyway. Mm-hmm. So they had initially gotten the go ahead to be able to use the bridge and blow it up for real for the movie. And then apparently there was a huge protest from historical groups that are, uh, you know, about saving landmarks and things and then trying to see if it was repairable rather than just blatantly destroying it. Um, and ultimately they got pushed out of doing that at all and had to figure it out um, doing in a rock quarry somewhere else and then adding in some CGI things, but they were actually going to blow up a real bridge with a real train on it. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, like you said, I I was, you know, reading some of the same things that you did. And and the fact that, you know, even though they couldn't do an actual bridge that existed, that they created as much of this as absolutely possible for them to do um, so that it was mm-hmm. as real as possible. Uh, and then augmenting where needed, of course, with with CGI was fantastic. But I mean, even just the them on top of the train doing the fights and everything feels like yeah. a real thing. And so, and of yeah. course, like you mentioned, I mean, this cliff jump, this is the first thing they filmed. They started with this because they knew if they could do this, they could do the rest of the movie. And it's mm-hmm. an insane thing that they're doing, just like the Halo jump was in, in Fallout. And the amount of time and effort yeah. that went into that is the same amount of time and effort that they put into this. And it feels like it, right? And if you haven't watched the video mm-hmm. yet yes. of how they put that together, we should share it on the social media page when we post yeah, this episode because... Oh, it's incredible. I mean, apparently just in training, he would do 30 skydives a day for several days in a row. He did over 13,000 motocross jumps to prepare for the motorcycle jump to then do the skydive. And then he did six takes of the mm-hmm. actual jump off the cliff. Yeah. I, I you, The man's what a machine. What else can you say, though, about the, the and and, you know. Tom Cruise, and when I went to see the movie today, and Chris McQuarrie uh, come on before the movie starts just to thank people for coming to the theater. And, you know, Tom Cruise says, you know, we make these movies for people to come enjoy on the big screen. 
And I think you can feel it that they're creating films that are meant to be seen in the biggest format possible. And they're rewarding you for doing that with films and stunts that live up to the possibility of the big screen. And I think that's what mm-hmm. makes this so special, right? This That's why people have, you know, continued to like these films. And so, I mean, I, it, it, the, the hard part about this is I feel like with each one of these movies, especially starting really with uh, the Ghost Protocol and then with Rogue Nation, then Fallout, and now with Dead Reckoning Part 1, it, it becomes redundant. Like, what do I say differently than I said last time when it came to the, the action beats here? Because they're astounding, you know, but unfortunately, we've mm-hmm. come to ex- – Yes, great. we've come to expect that they're astounding, but – it what's nice is that I don't have to think about whether or not the action is going to be good. They just find a way to create yeah. action that draws me in, has me on the edge of my seat and loving every minute of it uh, instead of being like, oh, well, that that doesn't look consistent. That looks kind of fake. Oh, I can tell that was done on a sound stage. You know, here I'm not thinking about any of that because it just feels real. And I don't have to think every five or I'm, I'm not pulled out every five seconds. Uh, and so mm-hmm. because it doesn't look right. And I got to say, too, you know, with the music here, uh, Lauren Balf did uh, the music for Fallout, which I liked, but I didn't love. But I felt like this score was so much. I mean, wasn't like it was bad for Fallout. I just didn't. I didn't personally love it. I I thought that Joe Kramer, who had done uh, Rogue Nation, was one of my absolute favorites for the series. Uh, and I really loved his work. And then Balf did uh, Fallout, which wasn't one that I just immediately gravitated towards. But this one, I thought he knocked it out of the park, and it really fit with the film. It drove all of the emotional beats that you needed. Uh, you know, as hard as you needed, you know, just driving a stake into your heart at some points. And so I thought he did a phenomenal job. And, you know, it seems like he'll probably end up continuing with uh, the the series because McQuarrie is a big fan of his. So phenomenal work, I thought, by him in this film. Yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, I really left feeling like I wanted to listen to this one in the car on the way home. Mm. And I did. And that's not usually my jam. Um, But this was really the right feel. It felt larger than life, which is what you want to pair with the action in this kind of movie. Um, And then yet also had those callbacks to the original theme, which is so important. But I like that too, in every iteration of the Mission Impossible movies, the theme fits in with the rest of the music a little bit differently, depending on the vibe of that particular film. Because if you go back Mm -hmm. and listen to the Mission Impossible theme from five, it feels so much different than this one. Um, So, yeah, I I was really impressed, which is funny because, you know, you and I were talking about, I think, for the Dungeons and Dragons movie, not loving Balf's iteration there either. Um, yeah, because part of it I felt like was great. And then other parts I didn't love, like that one was kind of a mixed bag for me. Like mm-hmm. there were definitely things I thought he knocked out of the park in that one. And then there were other parts where I didn't quite yeah. love, uh, you know, love the choice, but overall I thought it was, was good. 
I think this, uh, he just nailed it out of the park from start to finish, which is exactly what you want in mm -hmm. these films because, you know, I think um, you don't want anything detracting from these movies. You know, they've become so good that you don't want anything to not quite live up for you. And, you know, it, music can make or break a movie. Thankfully, it's never happened, oh, yeah. I felt like, really, with this series. I mean, again, I, I don't even don't care about two to talk about it or even remember it but <laughs> i was gonna say except for but two. <laughs> everything else that i think people have done uh have have been good and and even you know re-watching mm -hmm. fallout recently the music does fit the kind of more intense nature of that movie where there's this drivingness to it and this, this slight almost darkness to it whereas this one because of the scenes that are going to happen with somebody like ilsa's character they, there's some romantic motifs that he plays with, specifically when those characters are on screen um, or when they're together, or even just walking into the big rave party and it's playing this kind of more romantic theme and until the big, you know, uh, bass comes in with the thumping nature of a rave music. Uh, you know, there's just mm -hmm. places like that. I just I loved his choices. So I. I could not agree more with you. I, I've really enjoyed listening to the score outside of the film as much as I enjoyed listening to the score inside the film. So to me, that's always something that's very successful. And um, and there was one other thing that I wanted to add that I forgot to mention in, about the action. I don't know if much the action, but just the plot. Um, I thought it was so interesting with the name for the movie you know, sometimes you don't think about actively how much the name means something mm -hmm. as well. And I don't know if you knew that the term dead reckoning was a real term for something, but I didn't. Um, and apparently it's the process of calculating the current position of a moving object by using a previously determined position or a fix. So that's what they call it when the AI used its own technology to turn the torpedo back on the submarine. It used dead reckoning to determine the pathway to get there. Well, and I love you bringing that up because dead reckoning is also in many ways how we as human beings move forward, right? We move forward mm -hmm. based off of where we've been and the truth of where we've been, right? And if we lose the truth of the matter, then we may end up in a place completely different than we thought we were going to be because we had faulty information. And so the idea of mm -hmm. like you saying here, this whole movie is about this idea of truth and all. And so Dead Reckoning is not just about, you know, uh, a submarine, you know, trying to find its way. It has to do with us. And if you take away mm -hmm. the foundational nature of truth from our lives, you have no moorings and you're just adrift and you will, you know, mm -hmm. you're going to die because <laughs> you're going to, I was going to say you, you wind, wind up, up dead. dead. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it is a huge part, uh, to this, this film. And so, well, with all of that, Christy, I can't wait to kind of see where you end up with your ratings for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Well, I will say I went into this movie a little um, apprehensive just because of the runtime. 
So just be prepared. It is a two hour and 43 minute movie. But I have to say that once you're there watching it, it doesn't feel like it's actually that long. It feels like everything has a purpose, albeit for me feeling like, you know, a couple of the action sequences were probably a little longer than I would have let them go. Um, Overall, obviously, you can tell from our conversation, I greatly enjoyed it. Um, I think that it had so much weight to it um, that Haley Atwell was such an awesome addition and Palm Clementif as Paris um, and that I'm excited and interested to see what they reveal in part two. Um, so I give it a four and a half out of five armored Humvees. Nice. Because that vehicle was yeah. really cool. But also just it it was such a fun movie and it was so powerful and the action mm-hmm. was incredible. And I got to see it in IMAX. Yeah. So go see that jump in IMAX because it was great. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more i think you know and i'm glad that you brought the runtime thing right um because one of the big detractors for us and one of the big complaints that we had about the dial of destiny was its bloated runtime and that movie was less time than this but still like i would think it was 238 is uh, two hours 38 yeah something like that i mean i sat through this movie twice this this uh, weekend and and I thought at neither point was I bored or disinterested or looking at my watch or any of that stuff because this movie cracks right like every moment is leading to the next moment and the moments where we slow down it's the perfect time to slow down and really you know drive home the emotion of things and so I was at a four and a half out of five my first viewing but I'm gonna give this five stars uh, I don't think there's any reason not to give this uh, five out of five cliff jumps because it's a it's another place where I mean it's different from whether or not I would consider this my favorite Mission Impossible movies. That's a different question, but I think what it's continuing to do is create fascinating stories with characters that I love and do it in a way that keeps me coming back. And I'm not feeling let down, right? Since I think for me, honestly, the third Mission Impossible movie onwards, I haven't been let I haven't been let down. And if two didn't exist, this entire series would only just get better every film. And mm-hmm. I, I think in, in that way, this is not necessarily better than Fallout. I think it's just continued the perfection that to me Fallout and Rogue Nation were. Uh, and so to be able to have three films back to back that I would call five star movies is ridiculous in a series. Um, and so I, I could not agree with you more in the sense that this is a movie you see on the biggest screen possible. You see as many times as you can in a theater, go see this in the theater because you are driving the fact that with your dollars, you're saying you want more movies like this and I want more movies like this. And so I hope that that mm-hmm. happens um, not only with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2, but with every film. I, I want more movies to feel like this when I go to them. I want them to feel like experiences I can't have anywhere else. Yes, I'll still enjoy watching it at home when I do my you know marathon of all the movies, but that the original experience is meant to be seen on the largest screen possible. And I'm so glad that Kristen McCourty and, and Tom Cruise agree that 
they're making movies for people to enjoy corporately on the big screen together in a theater. I think that's fantastic. So, um, but Christy, if people, you know, want to catch up with you and see what else you've got going on, where would they find you? Well, you can find me, of course, on Letterboxd, Instagram, and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And then, you know, I did a show with my friends Amanda and Teresa called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. So I hope you'll check that out at Sabres and Spells online. And what about you? Well, you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero are the places you, I'm most active, but you know, just try uh, social media with that name. You'll probably find me. Uh, you can also find me here on the network outside of the 602 Club with Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Saddle Up, and The Artificial Tango. You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network with two shows, Owl Posts. I did that with Drea Kaufman, and we talked about all the chapters of Harry Potter, one chapter at a time, and then Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. But... Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 